We, if you've been around St. Matt's for any period of time, you'll be aware that we've been going through the five foundation stones, which are the foundations to who we all are. Um, I started a few weeks ago. If you haven't, we're in the process of updating our website, I should just say. So if you've been on our website recently, uh, I think it is still working, uh, which also explains why the strange man from the paparazzi is walking around taking photos. Um, Wayne, Wayne, Wayne's lurking over here with his camera. Um, he's, we, we're trying to get some updated photos so that when, we, when our website and our publicity for lots of other things that we're doing goes live, um, that, that rather than sort of generic pictures of generic potential Christians looking generically happy, we have you. <laughs> um, but just to say, I know some of you really might not want to be in any photos. If that is the case, then just say to me or Wayne, please don't. And uh, we, we'll, we'll, we'll Photoshop you. Uh, <laughs> stop taking them for me. No more paparazzi, please. Um, so, yeah, so that's why there's some photos being taken. They won't be particular of particular people. They'll be more sort of generic things. But um, we're trying to get a bank of stuff over the next few weeks that we can use. So if, in all seriousness, if you don't want to be in any photos at all, then um, talk to myself and Wayne, and we'll make sure that you're not. Well, you might be in the photos, but we'll never use them. Is that Okay. So we're trying to relaunch our website um, because our old one is a few years old now, five years old since we planted here as a kind of congregation. I became vicar, and we're about to relaunch before Christmas, hopefully all going well, um, and it's going to be completely fresh, lots of new stuff. So we're aware that some of the stuff on the old website doesn't always fully work. We've actually hit a bit, bit of a problem uploading some bits, but I think you can still get access to all the sermons. I'm looking for Bill, who will know these things. You can. See, all the, all the sermons are there. And the reason I say that is that there's a great bank of sermons going back. If you weren't here last week, Mark and Debbie brilliantly spoke on what it means to be uh, family, and they shared about that. The week before that, we were looking at being filled with the Holy Spirit, and what does it mean to be pursuers of God's presence and the power? That's one of our foundation stones, being presence-driven, hungry for God's Holy Spirit activity amongst us. Uh, and the week before that, I spoke on uh, worship. What does worship really mean? We kind of know what, we're singing songs, but surely worship is so much more than that. And we spoke on worship. If you haven't heard any of those foundation stones, it's really worth going back and listening to them because it explains who we are and why we are who we are and all of our journey together. And tonight we're looking at our, our next one, which you might think, well, isn't it the same as being family? Last week was all about family. Tonight is about joining of the generations and I'm going to be speaking specifically about that. It's something I'm really, really passionate about. So we're going to hear um, a couple of Bible readings now from two people who know that they're coming to read, whoever you may be. Oh, a fiancé is coming up to read. Um, the first reading is from Psalms. It's Psalm 145. I will exalt you, my God the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All your works praise you, Lord, and your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. 
Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. And uh, I'm reading from 2 Timothy 1. Uh, Paul is writing to Timothy. Every time I say your name in prayer, which is practically all the time, I thank God for you, the God I worship with my whole life in the tradition of my ancestors. I miss you a lot, especially when I remember that last tearful goodbye and I look forward to a joy-packed reunion. That precious memory triggers another, your honest faith, and what a rich faith it is, handed down from your grandmother Lois to your mother Eunice, and now to you. And the special gift of ministry you received when I laid hands on you and prayed. Keep that ablaze. God doesn't want us to be shy with his gifts, but bold and loving and sensible. So, Father, we just... um Lord, as I try and share what I sense about this whole area, would you speak into our hearts and affirm what it is you're trying to do in these days, not just here in St. Matt's, in this church, but in your church, in the land, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I was um, thinking uh, about tonight, I had this blinding revelation that occasionally comes. I thought to myself, do you know, it's really amazing that I'm here which is not something you'll probably often hear uh, leaders say, at least not out loud. They might think it's pretty amazing that I'm here, but they won't necessarily say it. But I want to explain what I mean by that. Um, You'll find it hard to believe, but I was born in the 1970s. And uh, that late, thank you. Yeah. Um, So the 70s, for most of you here, for many of you here, it was a decade that you can't imagine. It seems like forever ago. But for those who were born in the 70s, uh, or the decade before, probably, probably true, it's true for the 60s as well, I just want to explain a little bit about us. I do. No, I do. So we, we survived being born to mothers who smoked and or drank, sometimes at the same time, while they carried us. Um, they certainly went on buses and trains, uh, worked in offices, went out for meals, where the furthest that you could see amongst the smoke-filled haze of those places was towards the end of your arm. Um, Our mothers, while they were pregnant, they took aspirin, they ate blue cheese, they went on fairground rides, they made food with raw eggs, they ate tuna from a can, and they never got tested for diabetes. Um, Then after all that trauma, our cots and our bedrooms and our toys were all coated with gloriously multicolored poisonous lead-based paints. There were no child-proof lids on medicines or on doors or on cabinets, and there were no stair gates. And when we rode our bikes, we had no helmets, and most of us barely, to be honest, had brakes. Um, and as kids, we would ride in cars, seriously, with no airbags, obviously, but not with any, we didn't have seatbelts. So I remember my three brothers, the four of us in the back of a Hillman Avenger, and then when we had friends over, they would get in the back of the car with us. We'd have like six in the back of the car, no seatbelt in sight. On hot summer days, we drunk from dirty hose pipes. We did. Yeah, you remember that too, some of you. No, you don't. You're far too young for that. It's a doctor. She's just laughing with trauma at the thought of 
terrible diseases that none of us got. If we had a bottle of fizzy pop and you were there with your 12 friends, you didn't think anything about passing it around, you know, with them spitting over it for each 12 of you. You know, none of us got typhoid or or died. And we ate lots of really bad cake covered in thick icing and sugar. We ate white sliced bread and real butter and drunk ludicrous quantities of fizzy, fizzy pop that had enough sugar in it to fuel a small planet. That was the kind, of, the kind of appetite of food we grew up on, really. And we were always playing outside in fields, up trees, in rivers, in woods, on the streets, in and out of cars. And we were, <laughs> I was driving homemade go-karts with pram wheels and plywood. There was an utter death trap. Big wheels at the back, little wheels at the front, no brakes, and ludicrously dangerous steering with your feet that didn't really work most of the time. I crashed lots, spectacularly. And then with a hammer, you'd put it back together, and then you'd go and do it exactly all over again. And we would do it from morning till evening until it was too dark and you couldn't see the old ladies walking up the road that you might kill them. We used to do it on the pavements and in and out of the cars. It was crazy, really. No one was able to reach us all day when we were playing in the woods or the fields on a mobile phone because no mobile phones hadn't been invented. And nor had Playstations or Xboxes or Nintendos. I grew up with three, yeah, you heard it right, three TV channels. That was what there was. Peter grew up with silent movies. He's not here right now. There were no DVDs. There were no surround sound, no mobiles, no laptops, no PC, no internet. I told my daughter that. She was like, do you mean no internet? She couldn't quite imagine the world. With, But what did you do? We read books, Ellie. We read books. And along with all of those things, you know, we, we climbed trees and regularly fell out of trees and got cut and broke teeth and bones. Uh, and no one got sued in those days when that happened to you or your neighbor. We played in the dirt, with lots of dirt. We ate lots of dirt. I remember eating worms as a young lad. We played British Bulldog before it was banned everywhere, and we regularly shot each other with pellet guns and with bows and arrows that we made. We rode bikes everywhere, never with lights, never with any helmets, and learned to pull wheelies and do really crazy jumps over piles of bricks, or next door's little baby brother boy whenever he was back out of hospital. We, um, we lived innocent, relatively uncluttered, often bruised, but simple lives, I think. And there's a few old ones out there nodding along. You know what I'm talking about. Ah, <laughs> oh, says Wayne, the good old days. They were pretty grim as well at times. But the, that generation, those generations, I think, produced some of the best risk takers, problem solvers, and inventors ever. With over the past 50 years, seeing an explosion of innovation, creativity, ideas, and dreams. Because when we were six, we all dreamt we could fly. And we'd give it a good go with some cardboard and some plywood off the side of the garage. Still got a twitch and a few kind of pokey out bones as a result of that one. But we had, I think, freedom. And we experienced failure and success And we learned responsibility. And we learned, most importantly, how to deal with all those things when they came along. So what about this generation? What about many of you here in the room? 
And what about the generation to come? I believe that as church, we're called to pass on the message of Jesus from generation to generation and share and embolden and pass on the reins of the church to this generation so that they can grow and learn and inspire and pass on to the next generation. Psalm 78, 1 to 8 says this. Oh, my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old. What we have learned and known, what our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands They would not be like their forefathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not yet loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. If you start looking at scriptures, actually you suddenly see there's a whole load of stuff on generations. Listen to those, those verses from Psalm 145. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. Psalm 71, 17 and 18 says, Since my youth, O God, you have taught me, and to this day I declare your marvelous deeds. Even when I'm old and gray, do not forsake me, O God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your might to all who are to come. Ephesians 3, 20, 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. Just as an aside there, There's a great bit in the Star Wars film, like the proper one, the first one, the real one. Mark Hamill in the spaceship. I know I've lost some of you already. Luke Skywalker in the Millennium Falcon turns to Han Solo. They're trying to rescue Princess Leia. And Luke Skywalker's trying to persuade Han Solo to go and rescue Princess Leia. And he's kind of, he's a bit of a kind of, I don't really want to do it. And he says, she's rich. There'll be lots of money in it. And Han Solo says, how much? And Luke Skywalker says, more than you can imagine. And Han Solo says, I don't know. I can imagine a lot. I always think of that bit of Star Wars when I read this verse. Listen to it again. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. And I say to God, really God? Because I can imagine quite a lot. What about you? Do you imagine a lot for your life? Do you imagine a lot for this generation? I dare you to ask and imagine for a lot because God says, good one. I can do a lot more than that. I think God's pulling us, saying, dare to imagine what might be in your life and in your generation. Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to his power that's work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. So here's my question about generations. I've told you a bit about mine and some of the good fruit that I think did come out of that generation of (laughs) 
wheelie-inspired nutcases and free, reckless pioneers? Here's my question. Is it all about waiting for one generation to finish their thing, to have their best bash, and then to retire or die so that the next generation can step up to the plate and have a go? I don't think so. Matthew 22, verse 32 says this. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You know, what's really amazing, I planned this talk a long time ago. Uh, I planned the, the, the schedule of talks that we were doing a long time ago. What I hadn't realized <clears throat> until today is that that verse, Matthew 22, 30, 22 33, I'm the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. That's actually from today's lectionary reading for today, set aside for Remembrance Sunday. That's today's verse for us in more than one way, I think. And for some time, for quite a long time, I've been challenged and inspired in equal measure by this verse and by the biblical assertion, I believe, that God is the God of generations. I've been thinking about this and cogitating over it and thinking about this proclamation. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And I've been thinking about it in the context of lots of questions, thinking about the place and the potential benefits or the loss of what's often increasingly, if you look at church, segregated age groups, segregated demographic groups within church, so that Christian worship often gets divided up into communities. So you have children's church, youth church, student church, 20s and 30s church, older people's church, really old people's church, Peter's church. So however it might be, right the way through the whole realm of that. And I've been part of that. I've led children's church. I've been a youth pastor and a children's pastor. I've ran children's churches and I've ran youth churches. And I'm not saying they don't have their place. Because actually for many young people that was really important. In Bristol I led a youth church. You get up to 100 people come along. And it was amazing for those guys. And of course there's, there's something about students gathering and all the rest of it. I understand that. But are really all those divisions helpful or necessary? And actually might they be divisive? fracturing church community right at its core? Does freedom of worship and personal expression of faith and style potentially create kind of untenable rifts between the age groups that actually really, really do prevent unity? And it prevents generational inspiration and benefits, cross-fertilization of ideas and sharing of wisdoms and styles that actually where everybody wins when it's done well. I'm really thankful for church growth. I've been, you know, you read lots of newspapers and you might think the church is done. Actually, I've been around church and just seen it grow in all sorts of different contexts, not just contemporary contexts. Actually, St. Tom's is growing in a very traditional context now. It's really just about confidence, leadership, and most importantly, God's spirit turning up and bringing growth. And I'm thankful for church growth and I want to celebrate where I see that. But I increasingly wonder how we can learn to celebrate and honor our generational differences and strengths, yet without the cost of dislocation and fracture between us all. What might intergenerational church really, really look like? 
I don't mean accidental generational church. You sometimes go, but I mean intentionally trying to join generations. What might that look like? What might generational family look like? And what might be the benefits? And what are some of the challenges? I know there will be challenges. A family once had this really precious heirloom. It was this beautiful, ancient, oriental vase that was passed down from one generation to the next generation. And one day, the parents of the family who are currently owning that vase in this long chain of history let the teen- left the teenagers at home while they went out shopping for the day. And when they came home, their children met the parents at the door with very sad faces, saying, Mum, Dad... You know that priceless heirloom our family passed down one generation to the next? Yeah, well, our generation just dropped it. And sometimes I wonder if that's how we can feel in church. I don't think that's how it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be like that. I don't think one generation is simply supposed to say, all right, guys, we've had our turn admiring great Aunt Nellie's vase and keeping it safe. Now it's your turn. Good luck. We're off to enjoy retirement. We're going on a saga holiday sailing up the Danube. Off you go. I don't think that's how it's supposed to be. And yet that is so often how it is in church leadership. But neither are we supposed to put the vase in a childproof cabinet and tell you that you can only touch it when we're dead or when you're very old and perhaps a little bit more responsible than you currently are. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, says God. What might he mean by that? Abraham. Abraham had incredible faith. He's the father. Out of all the tribes of the earth, Abraham was taken out of them all and claimed as the father of the faith. Like the disciples of Jesus' day and the disciples of our day, Abraham was invited to leave everything and go as a pioneer to a place that he didn't know. And he went. He knew that the encounter that he'd had with God was so real. He'd had a really deep encounter with God. He'd heard God. He'd seen God. He knew that God was calling him. And it was so life-changing, so inspiring, that he could stake his entire life on it. And he went on it. He was a risk-taker, a pioneer. But he did it, not trusting in his own strength, but trusting in God. His faith was incredible. His faith was an example, his, a gift and an inspiration. And he passed that faith on to his son, Isaac. Isaac did two great things. First, he was willing to be sacrificed as a young man. Remember that story? He carried, in true messianic fashion, he was willingly carried the wood to the hill of the Lord to be sacrificed himself. Then after the lamb was provided so that he didn't have to be sacrificed, in later years, Isaac grew up and was t- we're told that he redug the wells of his father. So Isaac's like a kind of revivalist. He's probably a bit of a radical risk taker himself. He's got a bit of that from his dad, but he's different from his dad, I think. He took what his father had done. He took the kind of heart of faith that he saw in that, but he lived it out in a way that was different and unique for him. He looked at that and he brought it back into current society. He honored it. He remembered it. He reimagined what faith might look like in his day. And he made it relevant and accessible for those of his generation. 
So what about Jacob, his son? Remember, God says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, Jacob, he's a funny one. I really like Jacob. He was different. He was gritty. He was stubborn. He was a bit of a git, if you're honest. I'm not sure I'm allowed to say that, but I've said it now. He was struggling with life. He had a lot to live up to. Sometimes that's a hard thing. Maybe some of you have got siblings who are older than you, and they've been great achievers. And, you know, and sometimes we can live in the shadow of people. What about Jacob? Well, he was stubborn. Perhaps, maybe we could call him persistent, perhaps. Passionately persevering. And he too, he carried that family DNA, and in him it did look really, really different. His father had met with God. His grandfather before him had met with God. And you know what? He wanted to have his own story too. He wanted to have his own encounter with God. And he went about it in all the wrong ways. You can read about his story. I preached on it a month or so back. He longed for blessing. He longed and strove to be affirmed by God. And he'd get blessing, he thought to himself, shrewdly or by force. One way or another, he was going to get blessed. And so it is a story of deceit, of pain, of betrayal, but ultimately also of destiny, reconciliation and victory. And somehow, even in his brokenness, God's saying, I've got my hand on this man, and I'm going to turn it out for good, for glory. It doesn't always have to be polished. Sometimes we make mistakes, but God says, it's okay. I can do wonderful things through you, even with your mistakes. By wrestling with God, Jacob and this generation, you today, I believe, become who they truly are meant to be and get a new name. He wrestled with God and finally understood what it was to truly receive a blessing from God. And he got a new name. I think this generation needs to wrestle, needs to learn to wrestle with God. I think one of the greatest challenges facing you, and I don't say this lightly, this generation, when I say you, <laughs> it might not be you personally, but one of the greatest gener- challenges facing this generation, I think, is entitlement. There's a perception, which of course means that it's never entirely universally true, that millennials and Generation Z, that's anyone born, I guess, towards kind of the latter part of the 90s and through the kind of um, 2000s, have a label of entitlement. You know, you often read about it. The media will go for you guys quite hard, actually and say, you think you're all entitled. Well, what do they mean by that? Well, perhaps media might say to us that that generation just expects to get the perfect job when they leave university. You shouldn't have to fight for it. You've earned it. That you might be able to demand or expect whatever salary or promotion you want. And you assume that you'll be able to get flexible hours and kind of do the things you want to at work. And commitment, well, it's not really a word that Gen X and millennials necessarily like. And that in relationships, your needs and your expectations are central to the deal. So is that fair before you start throwing chairs and things at me? Well, if the label is given, and it has been given, I also think the, the cause needs to be looked at. And I think, and I think quite a few sociologists and others might agree, that a large portion of the blame probably lays with us. And certainly with previous generations. To a high degree, entitlement is, I think, learned behavior. 
because millennials never thought of themselves as entitled, but their parents often believed they were entitled to everything. That whole generation of helicopter parents always around them, giving them what they needed and encouraging them and, and kind of putting everything on a plate for them. And I think it's tied to the education in the days as well, an education system that increasingly was trying to tell children with good, but I think misguided hearts, that no one loses. You're all special. You're all winners. No one loses. So you have sports day where no one ever wins and no one ever loses. Again, I get the heart of it, but it can create a strange thing. It creates a world where no one ever fails, which may have been a noble parenting style and an educational viewpoint, but I think it's had unexpected ramifications. Because you know what? Life and this world can be really, really tough. It can be crushing. And many of you here will experience terrible losses and challenges and seemingly insurmountable chasms that you can't get over or through. I mean, like really catastrophic sometimes. But you're not alone. That's what I want to say to you. You're not alone. And when you do face those things, you're supposed to have a family around you to hold you, to stand with you, to help you, to shield you, to realign you to truth, and to cheer you forward in God's grace, love, and power. And if this generation simply passively waits for life to land in their lap, then I think our church and our nation is going to stumble. And an amazing opportunity will be missed, because I believe your, your generation is unique, that's never been seen before in the history of humanity, because of who you are and what I believe is written over you. I think millennials have skills and talents that prior generations could never even have dreamed of. I think probably, I think I'm right in saying this, but I, I was thinking about, I think probably for the first time in human history, you, the emerging generation, have got a wealth of knowledge and skills and dexterities and competences that the previous generation just don't. That's a really unusual thing. Usually one generation pass on their skills to the next. You have skills that certainly older than me, my generation, the crossover, will probably never be able to manage, will never have that. And that's because the world has changed that fast that while you've been drawing breath, everything's changed. It's all you've ever known. And so millennials... Sometimes you will have vision and wisdom and see things in the way that the rest of the world just simply can't. And your unique perspective will challenge boundaries and challenge the workplace, will challenge business, it will challenge financial institutions because you will see things that we could never have seen because we haven't been wired in the same way that you have. You will help change the world and turn it upside down. And you can, with your expertise and your perspective, I, I believe, can help change the world through unparalleled and innovative imagination and creativity that we could never even think of. But you won't do it on your own. Because you were never supposed to. None of us ever were. I think God's got a better way. And it's the way of the Trinity. It's the way of oneness, harmony, synchronism, unity. It's the way of family. And that's why I'm really passionate about this. And I want to talk about it and why I'm drawing to an end here. Because for me, God, I believe, 
shows that he can and longs to unite generations to do something incredible. I think it's one of the centerpieces of his purposes on earth before he comes back, the restoring, the restoration of the generations. Matthew 17, Jesus referring back to the prophet Micah's word concerning the mission of Elijah in pointing to John the Baptist and the final generation says this, that the turning of the hearts of the sons to fathers and the fathers to the sons is all things. I don't believe that's just dads and sons getting back together and finding friendship again. I, I believe it's far more fundamental than that. It's generations turning to generations and saying, I honor you and I need you. And older generations turning to the younger generations and saying, I honor you, we need you. I believe that's what God wants to do in his church and he's calling us to model, model that. So if two generations bring such radical change, well, God says, I can do more than you ask or imagine. I want to ask and imagine for more than two generations because I dream that maybe it's within the scope of God's will and power, maybe within the possibility of that, to do something really beautiful where there's a three-generational span that totally transforms the world. And I think that's in the Bible. I think we heard it tonight in that two, we heard it from Timothy in that passage about Timothy. In 2 Timothy 2, it says this. This is Paul speaking to Timothy. This is one generation speaking to the next generation down. And he says this. The things you have heard me say, entrust them to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach. Paul's saying, I've taught you this, Timothy. Now you, I want you to go and pass it on. And we see it in Timothy's life, don't we? His grandmother and his mother and him. We see these three generations, this flow of honor and creativity and beautiful kind of pastoral heart where God's love flows through it. Paul, an apostle, committed to investing in and raising up and empowering a new generation of leaders who in turn are already looking to raise up a new generation of leaders. That's what I love. That's what I long for. I see my job as doing myself out of a job. I see my job as raising up new leaders, new preachers, new worship leaders, where we all get to play. And it's not just when I die or get too old, which I am getting a bit old. It's not about that. It's not that when I retire, okay, now someone else steps in. But actually, we do that together because I believe probably you need me. And I know I need you. And there's young people in this church, like my Sam, who's 15, and like Joey, who's 12, and Tabsy, oh my goodness, who should be preaching most weeks. How old's Tabsy? 15. She is an incredible woman of God, and I sit and listen when she shares stuff, and I'm wowed. Why do we need to wait till she's 26 before she leads church or preaches? I don't think we do need to. I think God wants to raise up the generations so that we can honor and call forth that which is put in it. We can stand together and work together to see what God does. And I dream of being a ch in church where that's the normal. It's not just where there's a few young people and there's a few old people, but where together we grow together as family. And age almost means nothing. It's about our heart and our experiences and our passion. And we recognize the stuff that was put into me because of my generation, the honorable things. We thank God for it. But also we look at what's in your generation that God has put into your generation that we depend on to see God's kingdom come. 
when God called me, and he did, I remember really, really clearly when I was at university a couple of years ago. I remember that night when he called me. But it was never supposed to end with me. And when he called us here at St. Matt's to form this church and the team of us that started it, it was never supposed to end with us. And when God calls you, and he is calling you, and he has called you, it's not supposed to end with you. For too long, as I've said, it seems to me that church grows and matures and develops, inspired and built upon a passion, a generation of kind of apostles and passionate leaders who only are replaced by a new generation when they retire or die. That is not how it's supposed to be. What if this generation, you as young leaders, work and invest, and me in this, in my generation, I work and invest myself, not simply just in the next generation, but more radically stand alongside that generation that's already inspired to look downwards at that next generation. And we stand alongside each other, cheering each other on, encouraging each other. Three generations together learning from each other, inspired by each other, provoked by each other into action, into spurring one another on further. Each bringing skills, experiences, perceptions, imagination, creativity, wisdom, and uniqueness, like I said earlier on, that models something that I think is probably akin to the perfect community that we see at work in the Godhead. So instead of fragmenting the church, dividing into little age groups, we learn what it is to really partner together in the gospel as one church, different ways, different expressions, but together as family. I love being family. I love, I grew up, I was very fortunate with a family Young, old, together. For me, Christmas, that's probably why I'm so excited about Christmas. Christmas for me was magical because it was the time that all my family got together. Us young ones, older brothers, my cousins who are 10 years older, their parents, my aunts and uncles, my grandparents, and when I was really young, even my great-grandparents. Mad Aunt Nellie. She was mad, proper mad. But it was family. It was wonderful. And we laughed, and we cried, and we played, and we shared. It's a glimpse, I think, of what God is longing to have in his church. It's not always pretty. It's sometimes a bit messy, because families argue, right? Because we see the world in different ways. But that's okay, because we learn from one another, and we begin to travel together. And we have grace for one another, and we understand that the way one another sees the world is through different eyes. But it's not that our eyes are right and theirs are wrong. Maybe we can learn from one another. That's what I dream of. That's what I long for. And I believe that's what God wants to do amongst us. Together as family, modeling true community in a world that is fast falling apart. It's what we need to see. It's what God's calling us to be. Let's pray together. Jesus, we were never meant to do it alone in the garden you set Adam and Eve you gave them one another you committed them to intimacy and relationship and in the garden you walked with them and you've never stopped walking with your church you've never stopped believing and dreaming for your church to rise up to model true family to create family 
to dwell in family. And Lord, we recognize that for some in this room, family is a painful thing. Family isn't filled with joyous memories of Christmas, but family is something that brings pain or shame or hurts or fear. But Lord, that's not how it's supposed to be. Lord, we look at the Trinity. We look at the Father, Son, Holy Spirit in glorious oneness, in a place of mutual love and honor and respect, dancing together, weaving a pattern of life and love. And Lord, your longing is for us to be drawn into that dance and for us to draw others into that dance, to be cross-generational, diverse, multi-ethnic, ages together, young and old, all nations, all tribes, all people, one church living for your glory. And Lord, we know that we can't fulfill that whole picture But Lord, here in Bath, may we be faithful to be what we're called to be, which is a family that loves and honors the generation, the young and the old. From the youngest through to the oldest, may we be able to give honor and thanks, to recognize gifts, to call forth potential and destiny that all of us, while we have breath in us, you're not done with us, that you want us to stand shoulder to shoulder together for your glory, that your kingdom may come. Lord, you say in your word, by this all men will know you're my disciples, if you love one another. May we truly learn to love all, and would unite our generations in friendship and love, we pray, together in the name of Jesus. Amen.